May I speak in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated, everybody. And uh, by the way, I should have said, as I gave that notice about crosslinks earlier on, that if you did want to give to that crosslinks uh, uh, cause, then the thing to do either is to grab an envelope from the back, and uh, there are boxes at the back you could put some money in. We'll, we'll keep the fund open for next week as well. Um, so if you're unprepared today, don't worry. Um, like, there's also a way through the website, um, through our mission page on the website, that you, could, um, that you could give there. So I think it's just important to say how you can give as well as to urge you to do so. The psalm says of the wicked, they scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Well, the Russian president has laid claim to a very large part of the earth, Ukraine, and he has taken a possession of it with the most hideous violence. Who on earth can stop him? It's very hard to say. But it's certain that whatever he gains in his arrogance now, history will eventually take away. Queen Victoria ruled about a quarter of the world's population at the height of the British Empire's power. Uh, and the last verse of her favorite hymn, I think, is one that, in fact, all the empire builders of this world will have to face one day in the coming judgment by Jesus Christ, if not before. Here are the words. So be it, Lord, thy throne shall never, like earth's proud empires, pass away. Thy kingdom stands and grows forever, till all thy creatures own thy sway. See, when sinful, arrogant people lay claim to the earth and seek to possess it, they tend to produce something more like hell than heaven. And whatever they take, they cannot keep. For by contrast, Jesus Christ, well, he does lay claim to heaven. He does take possession of earth. He does it by the words of his mouth. But he doesn't do it in arrogance. He does it in truth. He doesn't lay claim to the earth from a position of power, but from a place of weakness and vulnerability and crucifixion. And he doesn't lay claim to the earth through violence, but through self-sacrifice. Yet, when he claims the earth, which he has, when he claims the earth's future and heaven's future, his claim will never fall. Now, we're moving towards Easter. And as we do, we're going to follow Luke's account of Jesus' death and resurrection. We're picking up the story today, as Elizabeth read to us, in Luke chapter 21. Jesus has entered Jerusalem, knowing full well that he will be killed there. And the public receive him initially with joy, but after Jesus has driven out the religious racketeers from the temple, the, temple, the religious authorities know, the establishment knows that they must put a stop to him. And so they attempt to turn the public against him. And they do that by essentially devising clever questions on sensitive topics to embarrass him. 
but his answers to their questions stun them into silence. And one by one, these groups leave. Well, then the disciples, perhaps trying to lighten the mood, point out to Jesus what lovely architecture the temple shows. He says, what marvellous temple. See, the, the disciples, they're all country boys. And there they are in the big city, and they say, look at that marvellous big temple there. It's huge, Jesus. It's massive. They're amazed at this wonderful temple. What lovely stones. They're in awe of the building. And actually, it's no wonder, because Josephus, the, uh, the, uh, the Jewish historian of just after this time, he said that this temple glinted like, when, it, when the sun shone on it, it glinted like snow-capped mountains. It was a stunning building. But as Jesus looks at the temple, he doesn't see a contender to join the list of the seven ancient wonder, eight wonders of the ancient world. He sees a judgment waiting to fall. If you've got Luke 21 open, look at verse 6. Luke 21, verse 6, Jesus prophesies, As for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Now what we have here is the climax of a theme that has been building through Luke's gospel. Jerusalem was the city of God's kings and God's prophets. It was the place of his presence, the place of his promise. And yet her days are numbered, he says. So months earlier, Jesus had lamented Jerusalem, oh Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers his, uh, her chicks under her wings, but you are not willing. Look, he prophesies, your house is left to you desolate. And then as he approaches the city, he weeps, knowing that in rejecting him, she will be sealing her own judgment. And so that marvellous building that amazed the disciples will become a pile of rubble through an act of divine judgment. Well, this shattering announcement prompts the disciples to ask two questions. Verse 7, Luke 21, verse 7. Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to take place? Now, the rest of Luke 21 answers those two questions. The chapter is structured around those two questions. This morning, we think about the first question, when? When will it happen? And then next week, Andrew, who's leading our service this week, he's preaching, and he'll take the second question, what are the signs of the end? And next week, we will discover that the destruction of Jerusalem, which took place 40 years later, 40 years after Jesus spoke in AD 70, the destruction of Jerusalem, is actually a sign, is a preview of the end of history when Jesus returns in judgment. You see, Jesus here is laying claim to the future of this whole world, this whole cosmos as its judge. But this morning, we're focusing on this question, when? When will Jerusalem fall? When will Jesus come back? Because it seems that final judgment is in the disciples' minds as well, as it is in Jesus' mind here. Now, will you be disappointed that I tell you I'm not about to reveal the date of the second coming? If you're disappointed, I'm sorry, there are no refunds. Um, Jesus has never 
given us the date of his coming. When will these things happen? Jesus' answer to the question when is not to give a date that they can put in their diary. His answer is a tantalizing not yet. When? Not yet. There is going to be a wait, a gap, a period of history that his followers will have to navigate before the end comes. So look at verse 9, for example. Verse 9. Jesus says, uh, he says, these things must happen first. You just see he's described lots of things. He says, these things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. The end will not come right away. The answer to the question, when, is not yet. A better question for them to have asked, and the one Jesus actually answers, is the question, how shall we steer our way through the period of history that lies ahead? The time while we wait for Jesus to come. Well, we can sum up Jesus' answer to that more important question uh, with two instructions. First of all, this is, this is really the, the structure of how I'm going to present this exposition this morning. First of all, he warns us not to think that we can read the timing of the end from the events of history. He warns us not to think that we can read the timing of the end from the events of history, because if we were to do so, we would be badly deceived. Verse 8, he warns the disciples, watch out that you are not deceived. For many will come in my name, claiming, I am he, and the time is near. Do not follow them. So Jesus is saying, this period of history will be filled with false claims. The false claims of those who either think that they themselves are the ultimate answer to the world's problems. In other words, false messiahs of different varieties. Or people who think that they know the date or the timetable for Jesus' return. He says, don't be deceived by these people. These pretenders, and they are pretenders... The problem is they are plausible because they plug into a current that is just wired deep in and runs deep in to the human mind. Because most of us, well, I, I think probably all of us, really are hardwired to know that the world has an end. We just know it. One film critic wrote... He said, we have a strange fascination for witnessing society unravel and for reading the final chapter of the book that is humanity from the safety of a cinema chair. We love it. We love watching it all come to pieces before our eyes. Some meteor, like meteorite's going to hit the world or some you know, alien monkeys are going to invade and wipe us all, a nuclear explosion or rising sea or whatever. We have hardwired into us the sense of the end. A few years ago, I don't know if you remember, it was about four years ago, there was a massive sandstorm in the Sahara and it affected the colour of the skies here and we had lots of the sand on everybody's cars. Do you remember it was a few, maybe it was only two or three years ago and the number of people who were not believers at all who said to me that they thought the end was nigh. 
when they saw that. It's the, it was the same again when COVID hit. People with no sort of structure of end times thinking. Well, it, does it mean the end's coming? Um, Well-meaning Christians have a habit of being distracted um, uh, by this kind of bad habit as well. Of doing exactly what Jesus tells us here not to do. Which is to confuse the normal events of history with imminent signs of the end. The one does not signify the other. So, Christian, uh, sometimes in the past, tragically, Christians have tried to force events. They've tried to force, to gerrymander the events of history in order to sort of force God's hand into um, uh, bringing the end times timetable. The Crusades were a little bit like that in the Middle Ages. Actually, there's a strong strain in Islamic terrorism today that we see in the world is to do with this, trying to force Allah's hand as they see it to bring about the end time events as they perceive them. It's actually trying to force history to fit a timetable of God's supposed plan for the future. That can happen, that the, the, the Christians can even try um, to, to, uh, to alter the events of history, to bring about the end. But it's much more subtle and common than that. That's an extreme version. Geopolitical events, uh, especially, it has to be said, relating to the Middle East and the, and the, and the modern state of Israel are interpreted as significant moments in a painstakingly devised timetable running up towards the end. It is happening even in relation, I've even had messages in relation to what's happened in the Ukraine about how it fits in to various biblical prophecies. No. One country invading another, a war, a virus, a famine here, an earthquake there, a tsunami, a, a strange colored sunset, are these signs that the world is entering its final act? That is precisely the conclusion Jesus tells us not to draw. Just look at verse 9. It would spare us so much angst. Verse 9. When you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Then he said, so the nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines, pestilences in various places, and fearful events in the heavens. That is history as normal. Do you study history? That is history as normal. We mustn't be deceived into thinking that any of these events reveals what God has said he will not make known timing of the end. The t even the timetable of Christ's coming, he will not make that known. These traumas tell us nothing about how near the end might be. Look, just think about, just, I, I don't know how, how your history is or your geography, but just think about almost any country in the world. Just think of it in your mind. Now, has that country, that whatever you just thought about in your mind, has it experienced some significant trauma in the last 100 years? A revolution, an occupation, a uh, dictatorship, a big war, a major natural disaster? The answer is almost probably that it has. And that it is probably done so in every hundred years, working backwards. That is history as normal. You know, since World War II, we in the, the, the West here have lived a relatively charmed life in historic terms. 
And we've even fooled ourselves into thinking in our historical arrogance that we have moved beyond the normal events of history. So you've heard people in the news this week saying, a full-scale army launching in Europe? We thought this belonged to history, as though we didn't belong to history. Yes, we do. The normal traumas of history have not ended, no matter how much we wished we had really grown out of it all. We haven't, and we never will. You see, the devil is still thrashing around, doomed, defeated, yes, through the blood of Christ, but nonetheless wreaking havoc throughout the world. Satan, you see, has laid claim to the earth. Arrogant people do the same. But it is Jesus who really possesses it. History belongs to him. He has defeated the devil by his bloodshed for us on the cross, and he has overcome the powers of the world in his resurrection and his ascension into heaven. And his voice, steadier than the ground beneath our feet, says to us, look at verse 9, do not be afraid. Because his followers are involved in the events of history, course we are, and our hearts break for Ukraine. Our hearts break. We want to help, to serve. We will pray. But we're not governed by the events of history. They are not of ultimate significance, so they needn't make us afraid. Neither should we ever think that they carry a message from God about the end of the world. Let us never credit uh, human events, the events of human history, with more significance than they really hold. Let us not fear them. And let us not believe them to be divine revelation. You know, deception in these matters can be so costly. It can lead to a crippling fear at a very basic level, a fear that we are at the mercy of these events. Um, and that these events are the sort of the absolute ultimate reality under which we live. They're not. And then again, of course, church history is littered with specific predictions of the date of Christ's coming, very often in relation to events. At the time of the Reformation, 500 years ago, there was a huge industry of announcements about the end that was coming. It was the same around the year 1000. And uh, it's the same. Well, any, any time there's an upheaval, there's always, oh, it's coming soon, it's coming soon. Oh, come on. That's not what Jesus said. The church is littered with these predictions. It's so ridiculous. They do lead to disillusionment and very quick rehashes of theology. For example, the Jehovah's Witnesses were convinced he was coming back in 1914. Well, what came of that? Oh, it was a secret coming, you know, veiled in the coming of the First World War. Oh, come on! These predictions happen. They can lead to suicidal madness, of course. Every, every so often a man like David Koresh, do you remember him? Rises of the Branch Davidian cult at Waco, Texas, um, claiming that he's going to usher in the end. He literally deluded people to their deaths. There have been plenty like that in history. But I think a much more common common or garden, common or garden problem um, in Christian life, in church life, is to get distracted from the real center of Jesus' actions, to get distracted by the events of history from the real events of history, from the real things that make the story. So 
because Christians can often become obsessed by certain events in the world, certain happenings in geopolitics, certain relationships between nations, certain agreements between different nations, and there's, oh, look, the kingdom's coming over there, the kingdom's coming over there. No, Jesus said the kingdom of God does not come by man's observation. It's not how it comes. It comes how? Through the church's testimony to Jesus. That's how it comes. Through the church's testimony to Jesus. And that leads to a second lesson Jesus wants his disciples to learn as they navigate their way through history. And here we see him laying hold of this world in the most extraordinary, striking way, even before he comes and brings it to its final end in judgment and ultimate salvation. So here's the second thing. First thing, we're not to confuse the events of history with the signs of the end, of the, the, the imminent end. That's, we shouldn't do that. But here's the second thing. We are to testify to Jesus in the teeth of opposition, and he will testify through us. We must testify to Jesus into the teeth of opposition, and he will testify to himself through us. Verse 12. But before all this, in other words, this is, you know, this, is, this is basically the future, really, your immediate future, church. He says to his disciples around him, they will lay hands on you and they will persecute you. And he describes religious and civil authorities dragging them into court, friends and family betraying them. Death, he says, will come to some of you. And all that in addition to the difficulties everyone will face in the turbulence of history as normal. Of course, we see this happening to those disciples, those 12 listening. We see it happening in the book of Acts. Remember the apostles? They're dragged before the religious courts, the civil courts. Some of them are killed. And we ask the question, how on earth can anybody live for Jesus against odds that they faced in the, the days of the Acts of the Apostles? How could that little band of relatively uneducated people um, testify with any great effect? They were going to be up against the, the elite the educated, the courts, the, um, the, who would, you know, the most brilliant legal minds and the verbal skill of all those lawyers and things, how would they ever stand? How could they do it? And the answer, of course, is they couldn't. But Jesus could, and he did. He did it through them. The thing that's amazing about Jesus here is there are so many prophets in the Bible, of course, who predict future events. But Jesus, the Son of God, stands alone in a different category to them because not only does he predict the events, he is also the subject of the very events that he predicts. He will fill the actual future events with his own presence. So he says to them, verse 14, he says, he says, um, he says don't, make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you'll defend yourself. If you end up in court or whatever, don't worry beforehand how you'll defend yourself for... Note carefully, for I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. Jesus, though absent, he will govern the situation. It'll be him speaking in the court. And we see that in Acts. Um, again, Acts 4 and 5, we see the uneducated apostles literally running rings around the leading intellectuals and politicians of the day. We see it again in Acts 6 to 8, when Stephen is standing calmly, facing false accusations with grace and wisdom and peace, which they could not answer. 
That was no human capacity. It was the living, present Christ speaking through them. Jesus is here about to die. Luke chapter 21, he's facing his death as he utters these words. But from that place of weakness, in that commitment to self-sacrifice, he is laying claim to the future. He himself will be there, giving his followers the words to say. He will testify to himself throughout the ages through the weak testimony of his people. He makes that promise in verse 18, but not one hair on your head will perish. And he says it because he will be the one to guarantee it. He lays claim to the future. And one day he will come in fulfillment of his own promise to bring salvation to all who are waiting for him and judgment upon a world that ignores him. He has laid claim to this world by the words of his mouth. He has taken possession of the future by the power of his promise. Later in the chapter, Andrew started the service with these words. It's in verse 33. He declares, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But you see, the thing is, we won't see that. We'll miss all that if our focus is on the events of history, as if they provided the real clue to what was going on, to what is of ultimate importance. They don't. Ukraine's story is not being written in the Kremlin. It's not being written by tanks and bombs. The plot line is one that won't make it into the news headlines. What's going on with Christ in that nation at the moment? The churches, the people of Christ, they are there. Wow, are they there. We've heard messages from them this week asking for prayer, to be faithful, to stand, to preach, to testify to Jesus. Right now, pastors have been in touch um, just through the general grapevine, asking for courage to stay put and share the gospel in Jesus' name. It reminds me, actually, I've been reading um, a, an account of, of um, extraordinary events that happened in the neighboring country, Moldova, just next door to Ukraine. In fact, really, it sort of bumps out, sticks out into Ukraine from Romania. Um, and let me read you this. You think, gosh, there's a war going on in Ukraine. How can Jesus be... Oh, listen to this. This is the testimony of a man called... He's now a pastor and teacher at the Theological College there in, in, in Moldova. He was, he was there um, in, in Tiraspol during the war that broke out in Moldova at the end of the Soviet Union in 1990 to 1992. Fierce fighting over that strip of land on the, on the far side of the, uh, the Dniestr River. There was fierce fighting. And he was right there on the banks of the river. Listen to what he says. He had become a Christian recently, actually through reading Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And uh, he was talking and he says, he says there, there was a war going on in Tiraspol. Um, I couldn't get out, so I stayed there. And... Um, I was in um, Transnistria during the time of the awakening. Things were much stricter then, uh, there, and we were not allowed to use stadiums for evangelism. Nevertheless, we used the churches for evangelism, and a great number of people repented, even as the war was going on outside. In the church in Tiraspol, where I was, there would be tank explosions outside the church, but the church was full, and the whole congregation would be on their knees. I was the church watchman during that time. 
Even when there were no services due to take place, people flooded into the churches, and so on. On he goes. In the midst of the war, Christ has laid hold of the world. When I think of those believers in Ukraine at the moment, what a powerful example of Jesus urging his disciples in verse 19, saying to them, stand firm and you will win life. COVID has unnerved us. A full-on invasion of a European nation has unsettled us. What next? What does it all mean? Well, no one but God knows. He is in control. All we need to know is that this world and its history has been claimed by one person only, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the man of love, the crucified one. And he possesses the world now so firmly that nothing can snatch it from him, nothing can bend the future away from his promises and his purpose. Do you know, for me, when I see the time creaking, I find the flame the spark that is in me lit again to testify to him. Is it burning you too? Is it there? That spark to say, oh, I want Jesus to be known in this world. Will you join me in prayer that God will light that spark if it's not there in you? That if it's there in you, he'll fan it into a flame and that he will let the fire burn. Here in our church, through the Crosslinks mission partners, through Wanyeki and Mary, through others working with Crosslinks across the world to testify to Jesus and to pray that he will work in those gatherings for worship taking place probably at this very moment in Ukraine. Let's pray. Light the fire within me. Fan the flame. We pray that you will light in us a conviction of the power of the testimony of Jesus. We pray that in the Ukraine today. May many find security in the everlasting arms today and repent of sin and turn to Christ the Savior. May the same happen in our own church, our own land. And we pray that the coming of Christ may be soon. We don't know when it will be. But when he comes, he will be mightily glorified among a great international people. For we ask it in the name of Christ.